Welcome to Oncology Nursing Update, Lung Cancer Edition. This is medical oncologist, Dr. Neil Love. I met with Ms. Kelly Goodwin, and to begin, she presented a patient from her practice. He was actually a very healthy, very active 64-year-old man. He was involved in an adult hockey league. He was playing hockey, coaching a couple times a week. And he developed some acute onset shortness of breath, and that took him to the emergency room. They did a CAT scan of his chest in the emergency room, and they found a two-centimeter lung mass. So they completed the staging and saw that he actually had diffuse skeletal mets as well. He had a biopsy of one of his bone mets, which showed a lung adenocarcinoma that had an EGFR mutation, specifically the exon 19 deletion. And what was his smoking history? He was a light smoker. He smoked about a pack a day for a year and a half when he was in his teens. So he quit about 50 years before presentation. What was his family situation at the time he was diagnosed? He is married to a very supportive wife who actually provides all of his care now. And he has two adult children and four grandchildren incredibly close to his family. He has his regular home as well as a vacation home in the Lakes region of New Hampshire. So very active with his family and friends, boating, exercising. What was his state of mind when he was diagnosed? He was absolutely shocked. He was shocked. His wife was shocked. He was feeling so well until that acute onset of shortness of breath. He had a hard time grappling with how long he could have been living with this disease. When he found out he had a mutation, he, like a lot of our patients, wonder if it's a genetic mutation, something that his children have to worry about. He was very concerned about that. I remember, you know, frequent phone calls when he was due to come in for a clinic visit, wondering if he was allowed to fast, if he was allowed to take his other medications what we would be doing at the visits. He was always very nervous about what a doctor's visit would entail because he was otherwise so healthy, he was never going to the doctor. It was a complete change of lifestyle for him. How did you explain to him and how do you explain to patients in general what these EGFR mutations are? So I tried to explain to him that it's common in folks who have never smoked or have a light smoking history that it is not something that he acquired from his family or that he would potentially pass on to his children. It was a unique mutation in his lung cancer that sort of turned his cancer on and that we had very good therapies that could target that mutation and try and turn off his cancer for a while. That overall, when someone was diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer, we see this mutation as a favorable finding, that we have a targeted therapy that he would be eligible for that is generally better well tolerated than traditional chemotherapy. We think that having this mutation suggests that he might also respond better to traditional chemotherapies, and that in general, people with this mutation seem to do better for longer than patients diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer who don't have this mutation. So I know that like most patients in this situation, he received an oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And right now there are two used in the United States, erlotinib, which he received, and a fatinib. What do you say to patients starting on these agents? 
So whenever we have a patient with newly diagnosed lung cancer, either a patient with a mutation or without a mutation, they get a dedicated chemotherapy or treatment teaching session, which is about a 40 to 45 minute session, with the patient and their family. We go over kind of the rationale and the schedule for their treatment, any of the anticipated side effects. We give them some symptom management strategies and a list of the side effects that we want to be called for or, you know, tell a patient this is all brand new to you. It's very overwhelming. Don't go through this list and figure out what you should call me for and what you shouldn't call me for. I would prefer you to err on the side of caution. If anything doesn't seem right and to call me, there's a big learning curve here. When someone comes in with a new EGFR mutation and we're starting them on first line or lotnib, I will try and explain the EGFR mutation, how that sort of turns their cancer on. And by taking this oral drug once a day, we hope that we can effectively turn that growth signal off so that we can control the growth of their cancer, perhaps even shrink their cancer so that they can have improvement in the symptoms that they're experiencing from their cancer. That being said, the treatment, although it's oral, is not without side effects. I think people get very excited to know that they can take a pill at home and they assume it's going to be easier than coming in for traditional intravenous chemotherapy. And so we have to do a lot of teaching about the potential side effects, how severe the side effects can be, and knowing how to manage them at home or call. I review for EGFR inhibitors specifically, we'll go over the management of the rash and avoiding sun exposure, applying thick emollients for dry skin. We give them a prescription for clindamycin gel topically to use twice a day for a mild rash. If the rash becomes more severe, is very itchy, is pustular, is oozing, if it's tracking near their eyes or into their mouth, it's very sore and tender, we ask them to give us a call so that we can start an oral antibiotic. Some Patients require just a short course of the antibiotics, you know, 10 days or so. Sometimes patients have a significant rash and will need to interrupt the dosing for a few days, let the rash calm down, and then start it at a reduced dose or continue suppressive oral antibiotics. I'll talk about mouth sores, so uh, tenderness or dry mouth. Typically recommend that patients use baking soda or saltwater rinses four times a day to try and prevent some of the mouth sores or soothe the dryness or the burning. If they do have discomfort and it's interfering with eating and drinking, we will prescribe the Benadryl, Maalox, Lidocaine mixture to soothe the mouth, either swish it around and spit it out or swish and swallow if they're getting a sore throat as well. Again, if that's interfering with their oral intake, sometimes we have to hold the dose for a few days. Then we'll talk about some nausea and vomiting. I'll give them prescriptions for some antiemetics to have on hand at home. We do spend a lot of time talking about how severe the diarrhea can be, and I review lorperamide instructions and the importance of staying well hydrated. I do ask patients to call me if they're having four or more loose or watery bowel movements a day in case we need to step up the antidiarrheals or get them in to check their electrolytes and see if they need some IV fluids. I will talk about heartburn and the use of antacids, which is fine as long as they're separating them from the verlotinib dose. I like a minimum of four hours apart. We do sometimes start folks on PPIs, and we would prefer that they take the PPI in the morning and the verlotinib at night or vice versa so that they're not taking them too close. We talk about the fissuring of the fingertips or the paronychia, so keeping the hands very clean and dry, moisturizing. If the fissures are becoming tender, liquid band-aids or something to kind of close the fissures, always monitoring 
monitoring for signs of an infection. Sometimes they need a topical steroid or they'll need an oral antibiotic and a dose interruption for that as well. We do talk about coming in about two weeks after they start their erlotinib so that we can check their labs, particularly their liver function tests. And then I also talk to them as well about calling me if they have a worsening cough or shortness of breath because we worry about the risk of pneumonitis. And this man got started on erlotinib, as you mentioned. What happened in terms of these kinds of side effects? So he actually did fantastic. When he had come in, he had some shortness of breath. While we were waiting for the mutation status to come back, he started to complain of a little bit of back pain, bone discomfort, which all went away within weeks, really, of starting the erlotinib. His first set of restaging scans two months into treatment showed a dramatic response in his disease. And then he continued with stable disease for another 10 cycles. What about side effects from the erlotinib? So for side effects for erlotinib, he had a very faint rash, actually. He never required oral antibiotics or dose interruptions for the rash. He was religious about his limiting sun exposure, even though he was boating it up in the lakes. He did use the topical clindamycin. He had minimal mucositis, not interfering with his PO intake. So he was just doing the saltwater rinses. He did have some heartburn, and we started him on a PPI. He had intermittent diarrhea, where he was only taking loperamide once or twice a week. His appetite was great. He had no nausea, so he was staying really well hydrated, and he actually never developed the paronychia. One thing I forgot to mention, too, that I will mention to patients sometimes is the eye symptoms, so the dry eyes or the abnormal growth of eyelashes, the conjunctivitis. He did have that a little bit towards the end of his treatment on the erlotin but that never required a dose interruption for him. And because he was enrolled in a clinical trial, he was frequently seeing an ophthalmologist. And, you know, the growth of the eyelash is kind of a weird thing. I'm not sure where else you see that. Did he actually have that? And what do you do about it? He did have a few ingrown eyelashes that were causing a lot of itching and discomfort. And because he was on the clinical trial, he was at regular intervals seeing an ophthalmologist who would just pull them. So he's still motoring on now, two and a half years later, like many patients with metastatic disease and EGFR mutations. He's gotten a variety of treatments. What about the issue of supportive care for him and his family? Your center, headed by Dr. Jennifer Temmel, did a landmark trial that demonstrated the value of early, at diagnosis, in fact, palliative care. How's this research going? So we have a clinical trial, actually, randomizing patients who are newly diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer within the first eight weeks of their diagnosis to either an early intervention palliative care versus standard of care. So just having folks meet the palliative care team sort of when the medical oncology team is having a hard time managing symptoms or when we're thinking that someone's getting near the end of life. This man did enroll in that study, but he was randomized to the standard of care arm. So he did not meet palliative care early on in his diagnosis. What is it that the palliative care team is bringing to these patients in the beginning that you think is valuable? I think early on they are helping patients with coping skills and to help them sort of set a new baseline with their cancer and to help them understand that they still have control over their lives and over their symptoms, that they can advocate for themselves. Early on, they're helpful in talking to them about their family dynamics and how the family can support each other. They can talk to them about the symptoms that might occur down the line, sort of help prepare them for that when it occurs so they're not as surprised and so that they have resources in place to manage them. 
I think they also, by continuing the discussion about the importance of quality of life and managing symptoms, it helps to give our patients some control over the decision about how the end of their life looks. You know, I think that patients want to do what their doctor recommends. And if your doctor is always recommending chemotherapy and talking about the next step, then you feel inclined to continue treatment. And if you start the discussion early that at some point we're going to come to a time when the chemotherapy has the potential to do more harm than good and may in fact shorten your life if you are too sick to tolerate the chemotherapy and the side effects from chemotherapy. And at that time, you need to tell us, I'm going to want to stop. I'm going to want to spend more time with my family. I'm going to optimize. I want to improve the quality of life in whatever limited time I have left, and I want you to tell me when you don't think this chemotherapy is going to work anymore. So looking back on this man's course, first in terms of the earlier part of it, in the first year or so when he was responding at all, what was your assessment in terms of his coping and what his key coping strategies were? I think for this gentleman, he had a very supportive family, a very supportive group of friends. Although he would be tired from his treatment and had sort of not been able to play hockey, they were still involving him in all of their tournaments and he was traveling with the team. And so to continue some sort of normalcy there was very important. Unfortunately, I think as he got sicker, either had side effects from his treatment or had more symptoms from his cancer. I think that he withdrew from his friends. I know I get frequent emails from his wife about him no longer letting his friends in or comparing, even on his good days now, instead of comparing his good days and bad days now and being thankful for each good day he has, he always compares it to his good days before his cancer diagnosis, which is heartbreaking for his wife and the rest of his family. Is there anything that he's looking forward to right now? Over the summer, he was looking forward to the birth of a new grandchild. And in terms of end-of-life directives, advanced directives, have you had that kind of discussion with him? We have, yes. And he's been clear that he does not want to linger or to suffer at the point when we don't think that we can treat his cancer anymore or if he were to have a sudden event. So he has made himself DNR, DNI. Hmm. Along the way and now, do you see him being depressed? Absolutely. We did send him to psychiatry and for CBT. CBT? For cognitive behavioral therapy, we also have a therapist. What is cognitive behavioral therapy? So that actually helps patients to discuss their feelings, their anxiety, and to gain new coping skills to help them sort of reframe and reset their expectations while they're undergoing treatment or because of their disease or any change in their functional status because of the symptoms of their cancer. Our psychiatrists are great at helping with medications like antidepressants or anxiety medications, but they don't have the time to sit and talk with a patient about sort of reframing, appreciating each day for what it is, how to calm themselves down when they get anxious, how to see pleasure in the things that they always enjoyed. And so to be linked with our cognitive behavioral therapist, I think has been very helpful for him because he's been one who doesn't want to take additional medication. What's your assessment of his wife? I think his wife is lovely. And I think that she has done an exceptional job of taking care of him and of managing all of his medical needs. 
I think she is extremely overwhelmed right now, and I think she feels bad for admitting that she needs more help. I think she feels like she has let him down. I also think that she sees the cognitive change after he completed whole brain radiation, and she understands that he needs help managing his medications and caring for himself and that he can't be left alone. And she struggles with overstepping. So when she calls to report symptoms or discuss a change in his condition, she's always very apologetic, you know, saying that she doesn't want to speak for him and asking him if he wants to get on the telephone with me, though she knows he can't articulate what's going on. When he comes into clinic visits, he'll admit that he thinks he forgot to take his erlotinib. He's not sure how many days of his anticoagulation he's missed. And she struggles to sort of keep quiet and to not answer for him. And I think that's been a huge struggle for them. She knows that she needs to provide more care and she's afraid of taking the last sort of bits of control or independence from him. And how about for you? What's it been like taking care of him? I mean, I'm curious what it's like focusing on lung cancer to start with. It's not the easiest disease, although there are a lot of exciting things going on. A lot of them are at your place, too. Yeah, a lot of the exciting things are taking place where I am. I think for me, it's a great honor to take care of these patients. When I was in college, my father was diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer, and he underwent chemotherapy and radiation. His cancer progressed to the brain, and he passed away within about a year. That was about 15 years ago when our antiemetics were very different, our chemotherapy was very different, and he suffered. I think he suffered unduly during his treatment. And that pushed me to learn more and more about the disease, to eventually go to nursing school and to specifically help patients with lung cancer in their families. I don't talk to my patients frequently about my personal experience, but I do think that it helps me to understand the family dynamic and to know that cancer is not just a disease affecting the patient, but the entire family. And also to explain to patients that any suffering at home with pain or nausea or anxiety is unacceptable to me. I want them to know that I think that their quality of life is most important and that while their doctor is managing the treatment of their cancer and we're going to be monitoring them with CAT scans, how they feel, how they live their life and enjoy their life is the most important to me, that I'm looking at the whole picture and I want them to feel comfortable coming to me if they're having troubling side effects, if they just need to talk about the changes in their functional status or in their family dynamics because of the treatment. I think it's challenging to take care of patients when you know that the majority of your patients are going to pass away. And so to be able to help them do that with dignity, to answer their questions and their family's questions, to help prepare them for what is going to happen, to let them know that you're on their side, that you're listening to them, is important. Anything that you observed, I don't know how much you might have gotten involved with the people taking care of your father, but any people or experiences you had that were particularly positive or negative? I met my father's radiation oncologist, and I thought he was wonderful. He explained things in terms that we could all understand. He asked my father about his work and his family as frequently as he asked him about his symptoms, and I think that that's important, that people know that they're not just their disease. Another provider didn't have the best bedside manner, and I'll always remember how uncomfortable he was delivering bad news and how that left my parents very confused. Hmm. Before we kind of get back into the science, also curious about burnout. And we, we have an annual symposium every year at ONS, mm-hmm. and we always get into this in terms of what you yourself do to take care of yourself. 
Burnout is huge, <laughs> particularly now. I'm not sure if this is a good idea. I share my email address with my patients, and so they can get me really 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even when I'm on vacation. So I feel burnt out <laughs> by the end of the week, and sometimes over the weekend, I would say I spend time with my family and with my friends. I watch a lot of football. <laughs> My fantasy team is struggling this season, <laughs> but I try to take vacations. I try and read. I watch mindless television and mindless movies so that my brain's not always on. And then I have a great team that we work with. You know, we all struggle with the same things. During our weekly meetings where we're talking about difficult cases, we also have a chance to share the patients that have passed away that week and to tell stories about them. And we support each other. And then once a year, we do have a bereavement ceremony as well, where we invite back all of the family members of the patients that have died within the last 12 months. We have sort of a musical service. We read some poetry. We read the names of all the patients that have passed away in the last 12 months, and their family members will come up and get a rose. Then there's a little cocktail reception after. So that's a nice way to see those families. Again, we're used to seeing them every week for months and months, and you miss them. So to be able to get some closure with them, to let them know that you still think about their family members is important for all of us. Wow. That must be a real experience. What fraction of the people you invite come? I would say probably a third. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like a pretty interesting experience. It is. It's wonderful. Getting back to sort of the science, one more thing I want to ask you about. I know that now we mentioned all the potential problems that occur with afatinib and erlotinib, the first generation of these agents. And now we're seeing new agents, and a lot of them have gotten studied at your place. I'm not sure. Maybe you've actually seen patients on them, but sort of the next generation of TKIs. And one of the things, and you mentioned the T790 mutation, which is one of the ways that patients become resistant and that some of these new agents will attack those tumors. But I'm curious about side effects profiles, because I know the new agents, quote, do not attack EGFR wild-type tissue. So I'm curious what they actually experience. Do they get the diarrhea and the rash? So we have clinical trials for two third-generation drugs. We have CO1686, and we have an AZD compound, AZD9291. They have very different side effects than the traditional, you know, first-generation, second-generation EGFR inhibitors. CO1686, we have, I would say, more experience with. We do not tend to have rash or diarrhea. The main side effects with that compound, I would say, are fatigue, anorexia. We've seen some QTC prolongation, and we've seen some problems with hyperglycemia. And people have actually been admitted with glucoses in the 800s. So there's lots of teaching patients about the signs and symptoms of hyperglycemia when they first start therapy. We're actually starting all of our patients on metformin at bedtime. And once they start to have any abnormal fasting or random glucoses, we are having them check finger sticks at home twice a day. And we're adjusting the dose of their metformin and their CO1686. But I would say for the most part, fatigue and anorexia once we start metformin, unfortunately, sometimes they do have nausea and diarrhea from that. So you also wanted to discuss this patient with an ALK tumor rearrangement. So another very healthy gentleman in great health, very fit, exercising, biking, traveling, very busy, professional 
58 years old, never smoker, who went to his primary care doctor after about eight months, actually, of a persistent cough and some shortness of breath when he was cycling, no shortness of breath at rest. He had a chest x-ray that showed a large left-sided pleural effusion, and he had a therapeutic and diagnostic thoracentesis. They removed over three liters of fluid, and the cytology was positive for a lung adenocarcinoma. That was done at a different hospital, and then he was referred to us. When he was referred to us, his genetic testing was still pending. We didn't know his mutational status, but given his age and his never-smoking status, we actually delayed treatment until we could get the mutational status back. You know, sometimes these people come in very symptomatic, lots of pain and shortness of breath. We won't wait the three weeks or so for their status to come back, and we'll try them on standard first-line chemotherapy. But for him, we felt comfortable waiting for his status. We thought there would be a good chance that he might have a mutation. Just to pick up on that Mm -hmm. one point, though, in terms of speed of response, I think people maybe from the breast cancer model of using chemotherapy, even if the patient's ER positive, they're really sick and they, quote, need a quick response. What about in lung cancer? If you know that a patient has a mutation, again, whether it's EGFR or ALK, they're sick, they need a response, are you still going to go with the targeted treatment or chemotherapy in that situation? The targeted treatment. So that works just as fast as chemo? Just as fast, if not faster in some of these patients. What was this man's life situation and what kind of work did he do? Married. He is a senior vice president at a large software company. He travels internationally once or twice a month. He has a son who is in college and then a 13-year-old daughter. And he traveled frequently with his wife and his daughter while his son was at college. And how did you explain to him in terms of, again, you know, what an ALK translocation is and what it means? So just like with a patient with an EGFR mutation, I explained that we have sort of found the on switch for his cancer and that he has this specific mutation specific to his cancer. Again, nothing that he inherited from his family, nothing that he will pass on to his children, but specific to his cancer, which turns his cancer on. And we're able to give him a targeted pill, which we hope will turn it off for a while. So this man got the usual first-line treatment, crizotinib, But there's also another approved ALK inhibitor out there now, seritinib. What do you tell patients about these agents, and what did you tell him about crizotinib? So this is an oral medication given twice daily. So he takes it in the morning and in the evening with a full glass of water. He can take it with his other medications. He can take it with or without food. The main side effects of crizotinib would be some fatigue, some changes in his appetite or taste disturbance. Some folks can have some nausea, some vomiting, some change in their bowels, either diarrhea or constipation. They can have some visual changes, so some increased sensitivity to light or increased floaters, some difficulty transitioning from light to dark spaces. You can also get some peripheral edema, so some swelling of the hands or feet. You can have an increase in your liver function tests. So just like the folks on the EGFR inhibitors, we ask them to come in within a couple weeks of starting therapy to get their liver functions tested. Sometimes they can also have some dizziness. They can have some bradycardia. Over time, they can have an increase in their creatinine. I would say those are the main side effects of crizotinib. With seritinib, they can have more of the GI toxicities. It's a little bit harder on the gut. So what happened to this man when he started the crizotinib? 
So within a couple weeks, he started to feel significantly better. The cough had resolved. The shortness of breath had resolved. He was back at the gym. He was no longer requiring you know, weekly Thoris and TCs. He was working full time and traveling. He had kind of transient visual side effects that developed, I would say, about two weeks into therapy and only lasted for a couple weeks. He didn't really have significant nausea. He had a little bit of nausea, but never required any anti-emetics. Some intermittent loose stool, never requiring any loperamide. Over time, he did develop some peripheral edema, mainly some swelling in his legs, which we had originally tried to control with some Lasix as needed. It didn't really work for him, so he wears some compression stockings, and he's fine with that. Over time, I would say six months or so into therapy, he noticed some increasing fatigue and some decrease in his libido, and we had checked his testosterone level, which was quite low, which we've seen periodically with crizotinib, and we sent him to a neuroendocrinologist who actually did a more thorough workup and started testosterone replacement for him. And the testosterone help? I would say it helped a little bit, but not as significantly as the neuroendocrinologist had wanted. So she had actually ordered a pituitary MRI to make sure he didn't have a cellar mass. And he did not, but it did pick up a suspicious brain met. And then we had to get an MRI of the brain, which did confirm this solitary lesion. And he was able to go for SRS of that. And what was done in terms of the crizotinib? So we held the crizotinib for sort of the day before, the day of, and the day after his SRS, but then he resumed his crizotinib at the standard dose thereafter, and he's been tolerating it fine, and he continues to see the neuroendocrinologist who's titrating his testosterone replacement. And he has, I would say, finally, in the last month or two, noticed an improvement in his energy and his libido. During that time, he's also started an antidepressant, so I'm sure that's contributing. Now, did he go into the palliative care study? He did not. He was so shocked by his diagnosis, I think, that he wanted to minimize the number of people that he met and the number of visits to the cancer center. You know, folks who are enrolled in that study, if they're randomized to the early palliative care arm, it doesn't require any additional visits. The palliative care providers see them when they're there for their regular medical oncology appointments, and they'll see them while they're upstairs in our infusion unit. So it really doesn't delay the day. It's no additional visits to the hospital. But I think he was so overwhelmed in the beginning, he couldn't think of another provider. And he didn't want to think about his illness any more than he absolutely had to. During that time, what were you doing to try to help him? With his coping, you mean? Yeah. So there's another patient (laughs) that we spent a lot of time on email back and forth talking about what were anticipated side effects of the treatment, what were completely normal emotions to be experiencing when you're confronted with a diagnosis that you didn't expect. You know, he spent a lot of time focusing on the fact that he never smoked, that he always lived a healthy lifestyle. He couldn't believe that this happened to him. Why did this happen to him? And so to just, you know, to affirm that he didn't ask for this, that he wasn't being punished with this diagnosis, that bad things happen to good people and that we would do everything we could to keep a close eye on him, to make sure that he was getting the most aggressive treatment, that we were helping him to maintain the best quality of life, to spend good time with his daughter. 
it was very hard to hear him talk about not potentially not being around to watch his daughter graduate from high school or to walk her down the aisle. And I think he just needed to share those feelings. He does have a very supportive wife. She came to the clinic visits early on. And then I think he started to come when he had a break in his day at work. And so she wasn't coming to visits thereafter once kind of the routine had been established. I'm not sure if he also withdrew from her at home. It sounds a little bit like he did. I would get emails from her that he was less talkative at home and that he wasn't sharing side effects. She would email us that his edema was getting worse, but she didn't want us to tell him that we heard this from her. Could we reach out to him without letting him know that she had contacted us first to just check in on how he was doing? So I know that that was hard for her. So just to be the person that he could talk to about his physical symptoms and his emotional well-being, to try and take that off his wife, to normalize everything that he was feeling, I think that's important. Any comments about the issue of patients, particularly patients with situations that are not curable like this man, where there are minor children involved? Here, there was a 13-year-old. I'm sure you have patients with children of all ages How do you assess these children and how do you try to help them? So we talk a lot about how they're going to explain their illness to their children, how to set the expectation for how they're going to feel around the time of chemotherapy. We invite them to bring their children to their visits if the children want to see what's going on. There's plenty of space for them to sit in the infusion room during the treatment or to go to our cancer center resource room where they can you know, do puzzles or play on the computer, but know that mommy or daddy is being taken care of next door and it's not a scary place. You know, we make a point of talking about their kids at every visit so that they know that their family is just as important as taking care of their physical ailments. And then we have a wonderful resource where I work. We have a PACT program for parenting at a challenging time is what it stands for. And they're psychologists and social workers. So we can refer, after we've spoken to a patient with young children, we can refer them to the PACT program. The PACT program will reach out to them. They'll do telephone calls or visits. They'll go over how to explain their diagnosis and their prognosis with their children. They'll follow up with them frequently. And they're particularly great at being available at major treatment decision times. So we can reach out to them when someone has a scan review coming up or there's been a change in their status and we're considering stopping anti-cancer therapy. What's your assessment of his 13-year-old? I have never met his 13-year-old I would gather from our conversations that he has told her very, very little about his illness. You know, he had the cough and some shortness of breath, which just limited his exercise capacity, but didn't really seem to interfere with his quality of life for a long time. And he was sick from his cancer, it seemed like. I'm simplifying things for a month or two while we were doing the therapeutic thoracentesis. And then he got such an improvement in his symptoms from his crizotinib therapy that I think he's been able to deny a lot of what's going on with his disease. They do take frequent trips. He's gone on safaris, and I believe they went to the Olympics. So he's making great memories with her, but I don't know if she really understands the severity of his illness. This man also exemplifies another sort of general thing that can happen with targeted therapy, which is sort of the idea of the escape lesion. Mm -hmm. The tumor is generally well controlled. The patient's doing well. This man had all these thoracentesis, and now he doesn't need them, but he breaks through with another lesion, in this case in the brain. Sometimes it might be elsewhere. 
And he also got a therapy that I'm hearing a lot more about, which is a local therapy for escape lesion, and you keep the systemic treatment going. Mm -hmm. Can you comment on that? Yeah, we do that very regularly. So as long as he's having systemic control of the cancer with crizotinib and he's tolerating the side effects very well and is living a good quality of life on that treatment, we try not to rock the boat if we have local therapies that can control symptoms. So the most frequent site of relapse for these ALK translocation patients is the brain. And so we can sort of cherry pick things off with SRS at several time points. And then when we start seeing more than one lesion or we're getting closer to needing whole brain or they're having a decline in their functional status and no longer tolerating the therapy well, we will often try and get them on a clinical trial with another ALK inhibitor, even before we try whole brain. The seritinib and now electinib, which is in trial, have better brain penetration. And so for these patients with an ALK translocation, we've been trying to use different ALK inhibitors and you know palliative radiation for a painful bone met or SRS for a solitary symptomatic brain met and try and defer whole brain for as long as possible. So we were talking about next generation EGFR inhibitors, and as you say, there's a next generation of ALK inhibitors, although ALK itself, I think, was only discovered a few years ago. <laughs> yes. Now we're in second generation. <laughs> yep. And at least according to the articles, the studies, it appears that people who have progression on crizotinib still often respond to this next generation. Mm-hmm. Right now, seritinib is the one on the market. Have you observed that in your own practice? I have, Yes. Yeah, I have absolutely. Patients have progressed on crizotinib. We switched them over to seritinib and they have had a durable response. I'm thinking of one woman in particular who was on crizotinib, one of the original clinical trials of crizotinib for well over two years. And she was getting SRS for brain mets when they would pop up, but overall still had good systemic control of her disease, was doing pretty well. And then unfortunately, she started to progress in the lungs. She had a painful bone met and she had further brain progression and needed whole brain. So after completing whole brain, she went on to get seritinib on a clinical trial, and she had about eight months of stable disease. How did she do in the seritinib? The seritinib was harder for her. She was dose-reduced multiple times for fatigue, anorexia, and nausea, vomiting. It was much harder for her. And are you thinking that maybe seritinib's in this man's future? I think it might be. We try and get as much out of each therapy as we can. So we'll continue with the crizotinib as long as we can. And then I think we would try and switch him over to something like seritinib or if there's a spot available on an electinib study, another one of those agents before we explore traditional chemotherapy for him.